Okay, that worked. That worked. Let's see here. We, uh, we're going to read Psalm 119, verse 9, before we get started into anything else. Psalm 100. We got no Jim here today, so he's just leaving it up to me to, to do this. Psalm 119, verse 9 says, How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I have declared all the judgments of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. How many of us obey 14? 14. Read it again. I rejoice in your way. No, no, no. It's the, yeah, 14b. As much as in all riches, I rejoice in the way of your testimony. As much in all riches. I don't know. Probably not many of us, though. But, uh, uh, as a matter of fact, that'll be a part of our sermon on Sunday. Mm. Jesus brings up a particular point to a particular person, and, uh, he, uh, it has exactly to do with that. So we'll see that on Sunday. Okay, we got some prayer requests. Uh, Akemi asks for prayer for Ilya's trip to go to Israel in late February. Looking for some safe travel for there for him as he goes to a wedding. And then um, let's see here. That one is overcome by events. Bell in Singapore has asked for prayers for the folks in China and any other nations that are affected by the coronavirus which is going around and it's starting to spread a bit but uh, we'll keep those people in prayer and Mary having lost her husband is looking for financial help in a job she's hoping for social security to be approved and she says she feels very alone and then uh, Tamara and Jesse um, I can't read my own handwriting are in Rutherford County Tennessee and there's terrible flooding there and then there's also terrible flooding in Alabama some people down there that need uh, some prayers and then um, give a praise I said this a couple weeks ago but I'm just so happy for him Bruce got a job after a long extended spell of moving and not having a job etc and uh, this morning I was just thankful to the Lord for that so there you go Andy is uh, angry and frustrated and this is somebody mentioning that on his behalf he's angry and frustrated and uh, I want to keep that guy in prayer that he can meet Jesus and uh, come to a saving knowledge of the Lord. And then Becky and Mark have some continuing ongoing uh, uh, sniffles. They're over most of their cold and everything. And then uh, Becky's got a couple other issues and Mark's shoulder is still continuing to bother him. Uh, I was told that it only bothers him when he overstresses it. And so I emailed back and I said, tell him not to overstress it. So there you go with that. But we'll keep them in prayer. And then Arlene is having some really difficult financial financial issues and she says it's very frightening so uh, we can keep these people in prayer and then of course we've got the list right here i've got all the names of the people that have asked for uh, salvation prayers for people that they know or family members and etc so we'll lift them up as well and then we'll get started heavenly father we thank you so much for the chance to pray for these people and the many needs out th are, that are out there and uh hopes for safe travels and uh, praises for good jobs and prayers for uh, sicknesses and finances and 
Lord, you know all of these things, and you're not unaware of them. Uh, sometimes it seems like it's slow going, but uh, as we uh, saw in uh, the epistle from Peter, that uh, a day to you is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day, and we see it from our own limited perspective, but you're working on things in a long-term way, and sometimes it's beyond our ability to be patient. So help us to be patient, knowing that you do have a proper answer for all things. And so we'll just leave our cares in your hands, and uh, we'll also pray for this class, that it would be something that may bless other people, but at the same time, if there's anything that's not correct that's taught today, that uh, the people that hear this would be alerted to that somehow in another study or uh, in some way that uh, maybe they'd pick up the Bible and come to a different conclusion that's proper. We don't want to have anything improper taught here, but uh, we'll do our best, and we thank you for the chance to meet here and to uh, just get into your word, and we thank you for it, we praise you for it, and we glorify you for this precious word, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. How y'all doing today? Good. Good, good. All right, we're just getting started. We're in uh, 2 Corinthians 6, and we're starting in verse 3 today. So let me whip out my notes. This will go here. And get my notes here. And then 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. It's funny, you're going through the Old Testament, you get to something like Jeremiah, and you keep flipping and flipping and flipping, and then you're looking for 2 Corinthians, and you end up in Thessalonians, because they're so small. Okay, 2 Corinthians uh, 6, and then verse 3 says, I'll go back to the beginning, so you have the uh, context. We then, as workers together with him, meaning Jesus, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Guess who's here? They showed up a little late, but they're here. That, I know, the traffic is miserable out there. I, as I said to Burke a while ago, I wish all of the tourists would just leave. Just get out of Florida, leave their money, and then go. Hey, so, hey, we have some tourists here. I know, I'm just being a jerk. I'm just being a jerk. Okay, here we go. So we're in verse 3. We give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. Okay, the construction of this verse is in the participle form, and thus it is a resumption of the thought from verse 6-1. Verse 6-2 then was a parenthetical insert. In verse 1, he had admonished his audience to not receive the grace of God in vain. After that came the parenthetical thought that implores acting on that grace today. And now, to bolster the thought that the apostles were pleading with God on our behalf, also from verse 1, he says, we give no offense in anything. It would be futile to plead with someone over a matter while at the same time offending them. In fact, it would be contradictory to do so. In order to have their pleas responded to favorably then, they ensure that no offense was coming from them. The word for offense here is proscopi, rather than the more common word scandalon. This is its only use in the New Testament. It comes from another verb, which indicates dashing something to the ground. The idea, then, is that they have determined not to allow anyone to fall because of their own actions. And the reason for this is then explained, that our ministry may not be blamed. The purpose of their ministry was to bring people to a saving knowledge of the Lord and to properly train them in the ways of the Lord. If they were causing people to fall instead of being saved, their ministry would be blamed for its inappropriate handling 
of their responsibilities. And, you know, that's something we all have to look out for because we say that we're Christians, we're trying to get people saved, and then we might say something on Facebook that'll chase somebody very, very far away from us. But it's hard, you know, in this world, it's difficult to not uh, uh, want to take a stand on a particular issue, whether it's a moral issue or a political issue or some other issue, when the people that are taking the opposing stand are obviously in the wrong. And it's come to the point where most people don't care what other people say anyway. All they want to do is just have their own words out. And whatever you say is going to make no difference in their life anyway, because that's what's happened in social media. But my thoughts on yeah. Is that when we lived over in West Palm Beach when we first came to Christ? I had like you know, cross in the car. And oh yeah. Like, that. like you know, and she was like, you know, if you drive like that, you're going to turn people off from from Christ. Oh yeah. Going, if that's all it takes for someone to get turned off from Christ. Yeah, they got then, their own problem. They, they already they, have they, something they, in their head that they they don't like Christians that. anyway. That's mm-hmm. right. Right. But yeah, it, it's true, and uh, you know, it's the old joke about the sheriff that pulled the lady over and started going through her car and checking for drugs and blah, blah, blah. And she's like, what are you doing? And he just kept getting on about her and checking her insurance. And he says, finally, uh, uh, she said, I don't understand. Why are you picking on me this way? And he says, well, it says on the back of your car that you're a Christian. And, uh, and I didn't see any of that in your accent. So anyway, it's kind of kind of a cute joke. Anyway, um, all right. The, no, no, no. She thought, he thought the car was... Stolen, that's right. That's what it was. It was stolen car. That's right. That's right. Okay, the word for blamed here is moa, moa omai. It is used just twice in the New Testament here and in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 20. However, it comes from another similar word, which is found in 2 Peter 2 verse 13, when speaking of those who walk according to the flesh and the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. Okay. The apostles' desire was to be above reproach in all ways so that they would be effective ministers of the word of salvation and so that their ministries would be a light for others to see and draw near to. How good it would be if all pastors and teachers of the Bible were so motivated. Now, let me stop right there. I want to go to 2 Peter 2, and um, I said verse 13 when, in fact, it's, um, let me see here, two, uh, yeah, it's uh, 2 Peter 2.10, so I don't want anybody to think I cited the wrong thing there. It's 2 Peter 2.10. So anyway, um, we'll go back there um, and read that again. The apostles' desire was to be above reproach in all ways so that they would be effective ministers of the word of salvation and so that their ministries would be a light for others to see and draw near to. And as I said, how good it would be if all pastors and all teachers of the Bible were so motivated. Life application, though we are not apostles, if somebody has the title of apostle today, you could probably just dismiss them because uh, there are no apostles today. There are, if you wanted to say I'm an apostle of the Superior Word Church or I'm an apostle of Grace Baptist Church or something, but why use the title? Okay, it's it's silly on the surface. An apostle, the biblical definition of it is someone who is sent. And if you say I'm apostle of Jesus Christ, that means you're sent by Jesus Christ and he hasn't commissioned anybody for the past 2,000 years. That ended with his final apostle uh, writing the word amen at the end of the book of Revelation, and that ended the apostolic age. So to use a title like apostle is just not a wise thing to do. Anyway, life application. <clears throat> Though we are not apostles, each of us who bears the title Christian is a representative of the one who best- bestows that title on us. And so we need to remember this as we conduct our lives in the presence of others. Their perception of Jesus may be limited 
to how we present ourselves. And so, you know, in this world, that's probably not true. I'm talking about, you know, the Florida, whatever. We got lots of people around that see Christians all day long. But uh, there are times where you may be the only representative as a Christian that somebody will ever come across. You know, it might be somebody visiting from Japan that really doesn't know any Christians. You say, I'm a Christian, and they see acting wrong. There you go, whatever. But uh, anyway, 6-4. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, great endurance, troubles, hardships, and distresses. Okay, this one's a little different. In all things, we commend ourselves as ministers of God in much patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses. A little bit different, not much. All right, the word but here is, uh, this one began with but, has began with what? Rather. Rather, okay. The word but here is based on what he just said in the preceding verse. It was the aim of the apostles to give no offense in anything in order to keep the ministry from blame. Instead of allowing this to occur, he notes that in all ways they commended themselves as ministers of God. The word commend isn't meant in the sense of a pat on the back, but rather how to behave. Their actions and behavior were constantly being subordinated to the importance of their ministry. It was as if they had a sub-program running in the back of their mind, constantly reminding them of the solemnity of their work. Therefore, they were always ensuring their behavior was kept in line with the expectations that Christ would have on their ministry. After noting this, he now begins a lengthy list of such expectations, beginning with much patience. This is perfectly in line with what he said to the Corinthians in his first letter. In the great discourse on love, which is in 1 Corinthians 13, yes, he says that love suffers long. This is something then that would be expected of an apostle. The demonstration of much patience, especially with those who were lost in sin, was necessary to bring them from their darkened state to the light of Christ. And he next then says, in tribulations. This is the same word used in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. It indicates a narrow place that hems someone in. Tribulation, especially internal pressure that causes someone to feel confined, restricted, or without options. The apostles, especially Paul, as is documented in Acts, faced such pressures as they ministered to others. His next description of them is in needs. It indicates uh, calls for timely help, such as strong force needed to accomplish something compulsory or absolutely required. And this kind of situation is typically brought on by pain or great distress. Again, the life of the apostle was frequented with such hardships. Okay, most of these notes came from helps word studies, the definitions of the uh, words, just so you know that. Finally, this verse ends with in distresses. As with the previous two words, helps word studies gives us a clue concerning what Paul is trying to relay. This word means properly a narrow place and then figuratively a difficult circumstance. If you think you're in a narrow place and it's a difficult circumstance, if you've ever been trapped into something and you can't move it, you get very, you know, your body like, yeah, panics. It affects you really quickly, really strongly. So uh, this is a difficult circumstance which God always authorized and hence only produces a temporal sense of confinement. Through Christ's inworking of faith, internal distress, sense of pressure, anguish is ironically 
the way he shows his limitless work in our limitations. So such was the life of the apostles as they endeavored to keep their ministries free from scandal. It was their heart's goal and desire to glorify Christ and to not bring any scandal upon his glorious name. Life application on this one, we live in a world of comfort and ease. I think everybody here would agree with that, even if we have troubles. It's, we have much better than 99% of the world ever has or ever will. But should that end for whatever reason, which, you know, it's going to happen to some of us for whatever reason, let us remember our testimony as bearers of the title Christian and endeavor to never bring discredit upon that glorious title. And that's a hard thing to do. You know, it's probably an urban myth, but it's still a good example of this is the... Uh, people that are worshiping in a church in Russia and uh, in come the, you know, the KGB types and they got their guns and they said, everybody that's a follower of Christ, get up against the wall. We're going to shoot you. Anybody else can leave. And so half of the congregation left and then the people laid down their arms and said, brothers, we're here to worship with you. So there you go with that. Like I say, it's probably a uh, urban myth, but... Yeah, I've heard that several times, but it's a good point to be made. They kept their testimony even in very bad circumstances. And so there's a reward for that where the other people just scurried out to save their own necks. But um, anyway, 6 5. I'm not sure how good the brotherhood would be after that. Well, that's right. That's, that's right. In beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger. Okay, this one's a little different, but not much. Two of the words in particular. In stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labor, in sleeplessness, and in fastings. In fastings. All right, in this verse, Paul continues with his list of what the apostles were willing to endure in order that our ministry may not be blamed. He begins this particular verse with stripes. These would have come from both Romans and from Jews, and the method in which each conducted them was different. Either way, it was a most painful procedure which was intended to humiliate and degrade the offender as if they were really scandalous people. Paul notes later in this epistle, in verse 11, 23 through 25, that he was scourged five times by the Jews and that he was beaten with rods three times. In Acts 5.40, other apostles were beaten by the Sanhedrin. Certainly other such stripes were to be found among the other epistles at other times as well, um, other apostles at other times as well. Now, the difference between the Roman beatings and people always say Jesus got the, uh, you've, you've probably heard in the, from the book of Deuteronomy, if you've read it once, that no Jew was to be beaten more than how many times? 39. 40, actually. The law says 40, and so the Jews would withhold one so that they wouldn't err and violate the word of God. So that's why they had the 39 stripes. Paul calls it the 40 minus 1. Okay, And so that was the law of, the, of Israel. There was no such law with the Romans. And so when Jesus was beaten, he wasn't given the 39 stripes. Okay, He was given the, the Roman. And now the uh, Jews would be a little more lenient probably with what they used. They would generally use um, a, a stick or something to beat them, you know, something that would hurt, but it wouldn't tear the skin like a, uh, uh, the Roman scourges would have... Um, you know, glass or, or bone or things like that that would tear India. Um, and another thing that I have heard, and I, I don't know if this is true, but I've heard that sometimes the Jews would take a lash uh, with 13, yes, 13 uh, whips on it, and they would hit you three times, and that would equal 39, and you couldn't go over 40. 
Okay, they just hit you three times with these 13 whips and that would be the end of it. I don't know if that's true, don't make a squiggle in your brain, but um, it's 40 minus one just to not violate the law, but the law says no more than 40. Okay, and then the, uh, uh, that's why when Paul got beaten by some people in Acts, he didn't seem to mind. He'd be like, okay, I'll take it. And then when they strung him up after um, the riot in Jerusalem and they were about to scourge him, he said, listen, you know, he, he appealed for himself. And the reason why is because it was deadly. He could have died from that. And so instead of allowing them to do it, he called over the commander. He says, you know, I'm a Roman citizen. Are you allowed to do this? Because he was protecting his own life. He, he, he could have been there and just been beaten to death. So uh, you have to keep those things in their proper uh, boxes. When people say, again, they usually ascribe it to Jesus and it makes a flowery sermon. But it wasn't a Jewish scourging that he got. It was the Roman scourging. Okay, the Jews beat him. They did things they weren't supposed to do according to the law, violated the law many, many times during his uh, uh, trial. But it, there's no record of him getting the 40 lashes. Anyway, um, there you go with that, just so you have that as a squiggle on your brain. Um, next is noted imprisonments. Peter and the other apostles are noted as having been imprisoned in the book of Acts. Paul is also so noted on several occasions there. Uh, similarly, Paul was later imprisoned at the end of Acts. He wrote some of his epistles from prison. Roman prisons were dirty and smelly, and if it was cold, they were very cold. If it was hot, they were very hot. The prisoners were often bound in chains so that they could hardly move, and sanitation in a Roman prison was completely lacking. And yet the apostles are recorded as having endured this for the name of Christ. And in fact, Philippians, which he wrote, the main subject is... Joy, and he wrote it from a dirty Roman prison. So, you know, he was able to look beyond his present circumstances to the prize that lay ahead. The word here for tumults, the next word, is described by Vincent's word studies. He says, this is one of the words which show the influence of political changes. From the original meaning of unsettledness, it developed through the complications in Greece and in the East after the death of Alexander into the sense which it has in Luke, which is political instability. One of the Greek translators of the Old Testament uses it in the sense of dread or anxious care. From this word, we can assume that Paul is speaking of any time they spoke and which was met with a great unsettling because of their words. The book of Acts is replete with such instances. In labors, which is the next word, is indicative of the constant work of the apostles engaged in as they conducted their ministry. Paul was a tent maker and supported himself as he also labored in the sharing of the gospel. In order to feed themselves and live, it was not considered shameful to also work hard in labors. This is something almost foreign to the idea of being a pastor today. Now, I didn't get paid for it, but yesterday I had a big tree in my backyard which has been just aching to be cut down and so I climbed to the very top of it and I started cutting that baby down and within 20 minutes I had a big tree all in pieces. I did that for you one time Burke. That was a really big tree there. That wasn't as big as the one that I did at the house yesterday but it was hanging over some other really delicate trees. The plumeria, they're, they're very delicate and I cut that tree down and I didn't break a single branch and didn't knock off a single leaf from any of the other trees around. Good stuff. No, I didn't. And I also, you know what, it was, what was happening is it was growing like this and eventually it's reaching for the sun over by the bay. 
And so every time it rains, it falls a little more and a little more. And it was leaning over the walkway. So anytime you walk down the walkway, you have to yeah. go under it. And my poor dad, I see him walking by the house every day. And I think he's got to go bending under that tree. And finally, I said, it's just coming down. So down it went. But that was a lot of work. Wow, that was a ton of work. But I got it all bundled up and all carried out to the road. And it's all out there waiting for waste management to come get it next Wednesday. But, you know, sometimes I always put it out early anyway, because sometimes people come and take even the crummiest of wood and they burn it. So, you know, they can have it if they want it. It's a gold tree, you know, the uh, yeah, yeah. tree oh, of Sarasota. Yeah, yeah. I should have waited for it to bloom, but it was the right time. And I said, if it doesn't cool down again, it's, you know, it's hot out there now. If it doesn't cool down again, it falls over. I'm going to have to do it in the middle of the yeah. heat. That ain't happening. So anyway, hard work. It's good. Good for you. Okay. Uh, jets and expensive hotels often await many as talking about pastors as they travel around the world, sharing watered down messages to people. However, you know, and also if you want, you can get a coronavirus uh, 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 elixir from Jim Baker, is it? The guy that, yeah, he's selling. Yeah, all it is is just um, silver solution, you know, uh, uh, colloidal silver. You can get it at, yeah, $150 for two bottles. Yeah. He's making a bunch of, no, he posted at least 50 times on Facebook today. And I saw it in some news articles and he's selling coronavirus kill, uh, cure, not kill. Yeah, it will kill you anyway. Uh, but you know what? If you take that colloidal silver, you know what? You got to be really careful with it because if you don't, you turn gray. It won't affect you anyway, but your skin will actually turn gray because it's got silver in there. So anyway, don't buy that from Jim Baker. Okay, anyway, however, there are also many faithful pastors out there who are willing to show up on Sunday to preach and also do what's necessary to keep the home well-fed during the week. And the words in sleeplessness are obvious. The days were long, the nights were filled with instruction, traveling was difficult and even dangerous if by land or by sea. The apostles endured long hours as they moved throughout their regions of evangelism in order to share the wondrous news of salvation through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if you look at Paul's travels, you just think that was a lot of traveling that guy did. And it was all by boat. It was all by donkey or all on foot. I mean, that was it. That guy did a lot. Okay, finally, today's list includes fastings, which I'll talk a little bit more about after I give the uh, explanation. There are probably two types of fasting referred to here. The first would be voluntary. The apostles would forego meals in order to continue sharing the gospel. It's not speaking of fasting like I'm going to fast because I need to get closer to God. It's just simply saying I need to not eat because I got to get this message out. They would fast in order to petition the Lord for his favor as well. They would fast so that they could travel without being heavy with food. For whatever reason, they would have voluntarily fasted. However, They would also have faced involuntary fasts. And that's probably most of the fasts that Paul writes about when he says in fastings often. That's probably what he's speaking about. They would face a scarcity of food due to a lack of money, a lack of availability, or even because they were facing the imprisonments where they may have been denied proper food. For these and certainly other reasons, the apostles faced fastings, which were hard on the body, but good for the soul. Okay, fastings. Just because they mentioned it here, Every once in a while, somebody will email me about fasting. What do I need to do? When should I fast, etc.? And I, I've told the same thing to almost every person that's ever emailed me that question. You're asking the wrong guy because I have never fasted. 
I eat all the time. I've never felt the need to fast. There's not a word in the New Testament talking about after the Gospels, okay? I, after the Gospels, in the epistles, there's nothing that tells you you have to fast, okay? There is the one time that Paul mentions fasting in conjunction with praying, but coming together again so that the devil doesn't tempt you, okay? He doesn't prescribe it. He just simply says that if you do this, you know, make sure that if you do this, that you come together as a husband and wife so the devil doesn't. Other than that, if you want to fast, fast. If you don't want to fast, I've never felt the need. I've never felt far enough away from God where I thought I got to go out and lay in the desert and, and not eat for 10 days or something, whatever. So I'm the wrong person to ask, but the answer is that there's nothing that prescribes fasting in the New Testament. Zero outside of the Gospels, okay? And even then, it's not anything prescriptive. Yes. Mine says hunger. Hungers, yes, and that's that's probably a better word. That's why I qualified that is because a fasting can be voluntary or involuntary, whereas a hunger is something that's usually involuntary. Okay. That's right, and so that's 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 why I qualified it the way I did. But just so you know, talking about fastings, I just see no need for it at all, zero. I know people that fast a lot. I know we had a guy in here that didn't eat for months, literally. All he did was drink water, and it's a certain type of fast, and. He lost a lot of weight. He got rid of a lot of body problems that he had, you know, ills and stuff. And uh, when he was here last time, he was on another one for 11 days without eating one bite of food. And he says the first days are real difficult and then it gets easier. And he says, I had energy the whole time. Whatever. Everybody does things differently, but there's nothing required, zero required for fasting. So that's your choice. You want to fast, do what's best for you, and I'll be having pizza. Okay. <laughs> Six, six. Go ahead. Okay, by purity. Oh, wait a minute. I didn't do a life application on that. Before you get to uh, six, seven. six. Uh, seven? No, no seven. it's six, six. Life application. How easy we have it in the modern world. Mm -hmm. But we must remember that there are, even to this day, faithful Christians who are in the mission field who are facing similar difficulties that the apostles faced. Let us pray for our missionaries and be thankful that there are such faithful people. Who are out there doing great things in order to bring the message of Christ to a lost and dying world. Now, he's not a missionary per se, but he is as if a missionary is Isaac over in Uganda. Okay, the guy's had malaria three times, I think, in the past two and a half years. He's worked through it. He's had colds. He's, he'll email and he say, I need prayer. I've, I've just got a terrible cold. And I say, Isaac, you need to just take it easy and not work for a while and get your strength back. And he's out there the next day digging a ditch or something. I mean, so there are people out there that are going through struggles just to maintain the testimony for Christ, okay? And they need to be reminded of, uh, remembered for that, and we need to be reminded of their efforts. But there you go. Little little uh, thing to remember is that there are people that actually do put themselves in, they expend themselves for the, the sake of Jesus. Okay, go ahead, 6-6. Six, six. By purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love. Almost word for word, it or is. it is. I saw you looking at your phone, and I said, I bet you you're doing something there. Okay, that is identical to mine, so I'm not going to reread it. Okay, Paul's list of what the apostles held fast to for the sake of the gospel continues to grow in this verse. His next characteristic is by purity. The idea he is certainly conveying is more than just a general concept of pure living, which is free from sensual sin, but the purity of morals and of mind which are behind his actions. The apostles endeavored to be pure in all ways to the exclusion of even any impure thoughts. They had their thoughts, as it were, 
fixed on Jesus. Next, he includes by knowledge. Scholars disagree on what Paul is referring to with the Greek word gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, gnosis. He is speaking of a knowledge of the law or of prudent living, or is he speaking of something else? Based on his constant emphasis on the gospel of Jesus Christ, the simplest explanation of what he is speaking about is referred to in Ephesians 3, verse 4, where he notes, my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Although Paul was given specific knowledge of the Gentile-led church that other apostles apparently were not given, they were all endowed with understanding the things which had been revealed. In 2 Peter 3, verse 15, Peter speaks of Paul's wisdom on spiritual matters, and he elevates Paul's writings to the level of the rest of Scripture. That's important to understand for a lot of reasons, but Peter writes of Paul in the same context as all of the rest of Scripture, implying that Paul's writings are inspired. He knew that even at that time. Therefore, the knowledge, the gnosis that he is referring to here for all of the apostles is certainly a gospel-based knowledge. His next category is by long-suffering. In the previous verse, he mentioned patience. Now he brings in long-suffering. This isn't just patience in the sense of waiting for others to learn but rather it is patience of enduring external attacks and fierce trials which attempted to thwart their effectiveness. Instead, they endured through these things, looking forward to a greater reward. And then from this, he moves on to kindness. Despite the trials and external attacks, it was their goal to return kindness to those who persecuted them, something that Charlie Garrett finds very difficult to do. I want you to know that. If you struggle with that, you're not alone, okay? When somebody is mean to me, somebody isn't kind to me, I find it hard to turn around and say, the Lord bless you. I know people that can do that faithfully every time. I find it very hard to do. Anyway, this is in line with Jesus' admonition to turn the other cheek. The apostles knew that argumentation and a defiant attitude would never change the heart of their hearers. And that is true. If you're going to be belligerent to somebody, you're not going to change them at all. 99% of the people will just simply double down. Or if they're timid, they'll just block you on Facebook and you'll never see them again anyway. So it's very hard to uh, get anybody to convert through. It's not possible. You're not going to be able to convert somebody through a defiant attitude. And then he says, by the Holy Spirit. That uh, shows their reliance on God to conduct them and to lead them the, lead the way for them. Instead of succumbing to the pressures and difficulties they faced, they relied on the strength of God which indwelt them. And with the fellowship of the Spirit, they were able to evince joy and contentment, even in the most difficult of circumstances. And then finally in this verse, he mentions, by sincere love. Of all of the fruits of the Spirit, this is the one most highlighted in Paul's writings. Instead of loving through pretense, they truly relied on the Spirit to fill them with the highest form of love. It is the love described in 1 Corinthians 13 and which allowed them to tend to those who otherwise would be rejected. But the love of God which filled the apostles was, <laughs> excuse me, was there because they had the example of Christ Jesus who went before them. He died for a world full of miserable wretches, and so he became the purest example for the apostles to emulate. Now, uh, Quite often you'll hear the highest form of love, you've got the different forms of love in the uh, Greek, I think there's five of them, and they say that the highest form of love is agape, that's right, and they say that is a God type of love. Well, 
you know, when you hear that, that's not actually right because when John writes about those who love the darkness, he uses the word agape. It's a very affectionate love. And if you're applying it properly, yes, it would be God-directed. But just so you know, agape is not always used in the positive sense. When these people, they love the darkness rather than the light, they agapied it. Okay, so you just have to be careful when you listen to what people say about an evaluation of a word, unless they are actually citing it from a real uh, source that has taken the time to evaluate it in its fullness. And that's why I love Vincent's word studies, is that he will take those... Uh, words from the New Testament, and he goes word by word by word, and I couldn't do what that man did, and the reason why is because he gives very little commentary on a verse. He doesn't try to insert his opinions or anything. He just says, this word means, or, you know, the King James Version is wrong in this one, and here's why, and then he analyzes it with all of its uses, and then he goes back into the classical Greek, and he gives uh, background information, and I love to read Vincent's word studies just to have an idea of what's being said, okay, but um, he, he doesn't really give any commentary on the verse, and I would find that impossible. You, you know, that's what I love is commenting on the verses. I, I want to know what I'm commenting on, so I do get that Vincent's Word Studies information. But, uh, wow, when you get into, uh, into uh, understanding the Greek, and uh, you know, very few times have I gone to Vincent's and said, that's just not right. Usually it's just something that is very instructive in nature. So there you go with that. Anyway, um, life application. As the apostles lived, we too can live. If we simply rely on God and are in line with his word, we should be able to conduct ourselves in the same manner in which they did. Oh, before we go on to uh, verse 6-7, I will say that if you like Vincent's word studies, because there are people that will always email me and say, well, where do I find what you were talking about? You can go to BibleHub, B-I-B-L-E-H-U-B dot com. And then you go to the uh, commentary section of whatever verse you pull up. So you pull up John 3.16, right? And down there, you've got commentaries by about 10 different scholars. And usually on the right-hand side at the bottom of that commentary is Vincent's Word Studies. If you want the same thing with the Hebrew, which is something I used just Monday on the sermon, and I'm glad I did, there's a, a word that's very infrequently used in the Hebrew. It's a word marad. Okay, which means um, rebel. Um, yeah, and then um, there's another word, mara, which was used in the same context back in Numbers, talking about the same thing. And I thought, why would they say marad here, and why would they say mara here? And uh, so I went to what's called the Ha Theological Wordbook of the Old Testament. So if it's something that you want to do, a study individual words, it's H A W. It stands for three people's names, so like you know. Uh, Hum, humbug and uh, H-A would be, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, Apple, and then three people's names. So it's just called the Haw, H-A-W, Haw Theological Wordbook of the Old Testament. And what you do with that is you have to get a strong number. Without a strong number, you're not going to be able to do it unless you understand the, uh, the, the Hebrew, how it's broken down, Alephet, Gimel, Dalet, whatever. But if you have the strong number, you go to the back of the Haw, and it'll give you the strong number with its corresponding uh, theological word book of the Old Testament number. From that number, then you go into the book itself, and you go to that number, and it'll tell you all you ever want to know about that particular word. Because what they do is they take all the instances of that word, and they put them together, and they show you what kind of a picture it develops for you. So if you like that kind of thing, go to the Haw. You can order it online from, uh, you know, whatever, uh, uh, Amazon, probably get a used copy in really good shape for a couple dollars. 
It's invaluable though. There are times where I'll spend an hour on a single word and uh, sermon and I will go right to the haw first. And uh, they'll also give you some commentary on the word itself, maybe a little bit. But those are the two resources that I would recommend above any others for New Testament Vincent's Old Testament Haw Theological Word Book. So. Oh, I don't know. It's probably not that old. I don't think so. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't think it's probably within the past 50 years or so would be my guess. Whereas Vincent's goes back to, what's that? Oh, yeah, it's all handwritten. It's all written out. That's right. Referencing all over the oh, yeah, yeah. And that's why I say, you know, people uh, uh, look at, oh, look at the error this guy made back in Adam Clark. Well, the guy sat there with a candle, right? They didn't have electricity when he was alive. And this guy had to research volumes of the Bible and volumes of uh, background commentaries just to come up with his commentary. And so now we have literally, I've got not just Adam Clark, I've got Vincent's, and I've got, I got 27 different commentaries, and I've got the Strong's number, I've got the Haw number, I've got everything I want within inches of my finger, and most of it I can access in one second. The Haw I have to go to and I have to open up. There may be a digital copy, but I ain't buying it. I'm too cheap for that. So I got the Haw, and that'll take me a few minutes to pen through it, and then I start reading, and I'll come to my conclusions, which you'll hear that in about nine weeks but there you go that's what that is if you're not taking advantage of the modern technology you are wasting your life in my opinion because this is the this is the one thing that has eternal bearing in your life now Hedeko and I did watch a movie that somebody sent me a couple of nights ago we had Thor and Faith over and I'm not gonna do a Bible study when Thor and Faith are over there so you know I we watched a movie together and had dinner but if you're not at least during the day spending your time in the word no offense, but I don't know what you're doing. I mean, this is this is it right here. And now you guys, I'm not talking to you personally. I'm talking to people in general. You guys are here studying the Word, and that's what you're doing. But I just can't understand how people can't get excited about this Word. Because it's, they don't believe it. I, they don't believe it, but some people believe it, and they just, that's right. But this Word is life. This word is life, and the more that you read it, the more happy you're going to be in your own life, the more content you're going to be through the difficulties. Oh, read the word, study the word, enjoy the word, love the word. Okay, 6-7. Six, 6-7. Seven. Six, seven. By the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. Hey, that's a comforting verse there, i got to tell you. That might be the uh, sunrise photo verse tomorrow. Um, let's see, in this portion of the ongoing list, Paul gives specific gifts of the apostles, which were a part of their ministry. The first is, by the word of truth. This is a way of saying that which imparts God's truth to men. In their presentation, there was no corruption of the gospel through human systems of philosophy or of works being added to what God had done. Rather, it contains that which is pure and undefiled concerning the plan of salvation and the right division of the word of God. The plan of salvation, uh, saved salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Okay, that'll be Sunday's sermon, and I'm going to talk about exactly that, the plan of salvation. How is it in its simplest form presented to somebody else? Okay, and as I said, I'm, just in case, I'll say it one more time, in case you don't want to hear me get down on a couple of people that you may listen to, either on the radio or you may watch on TV. If you don't want to hear that, don't watch this week's sermon, because I'm going to give two people who present their gospel to the people and how they're doing it wrong. And these are very notable people, okay? 
they're wrong, and it's the only way that I can give you this. Now, I can give you the gospel and say, this is the gospel, this, this, and this, and that's what you present, okay? But when you hear one of these people that you listen to all the time and they add something in, you don't even realize they're doing it. And so in order for me to explain to you how something is wrong, I've got to give you an example. So in, if you don't want your bubble burst over a couple of very fine gentlemen who do a great job, then I, that's my warning. After that, you'll enjoy the sermon and you will learn something. But I'm not apologizing for it. I'm just letting you know I don't mean them any harm, but what they are doing is damaging. That is incorrect and it needs to be noted as such. Okay, so uh, the plan of salvation, right division of the word of God. Next, he says, by the power of God. The apostles were noted for having miraculous gifts, which they exercised from time to time. These are recorded in Acts, and a study of them shows that they were not always available. But it seems that they knew exactly when they were and how to use them exactly as God intended. Now, I'm going to give you an example of this so you understand, because we know the charismatic and Pentecostal churches love to claim healing in Jesus' name. And they do it all the time, and they claim things that are untrue on stage in front of people and etc., 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 okay? And one, that is never taught in the Bible, not ever, okay? Sometimes these apostles did not have the powers that they were granted available to them. And we know that because Paul left Trophimus sick in Miletus. He did not claim healing in Jesus' name. Epaphras came to him, and he almost died for the sake of the gospel, Paul says. He didn't heal him. He was worried about him to the point where he thought, this guy is not going to come through. And then he says, I'm sending him back to you, him who is my very heart. He didn't heal him. Timothy was with Paul for eons. They traveled together. They were together all the time throughout the book of Acts, doing this and doing that. And yet, what did Paul have to tell Timothy to do? Drink some wine, a little bit of wine for your stomach problems. He didn't say, I claim healing in Jesus' name. And it tells you that the entire time that he was with Timothy, he never took care of that problem. There are some things that the Lord wants you to be afflicted with for his sovereign purposes. That doesn't mean he wants it for you in the intent that he wants it for all times. He wants it for you in this fallen state, okay? What he really wants for us is all of us to be healed, all of us to be in Christ and to be glorified with him someday. That's what he really wants. But in the time that we are in this fallen body, he has purposes for people being in bad conditions. I bring her up every time I get into this type of talk is Donnie Erickson Tata. She's been a cripple for years and years and years and years and years. She goes through great pain every day of her life, and yet she follows Jesus. And she's always writing about Jesus or having somebody write about it for her, but whatever. You get the point. So there is no such thing as claiming healing in Jesus' name. It doesn't happen. It is not a part of Scripture. It is bad juju for people to do that kind of thing. And you can take that with any other type of, uh, you know, tongues and just go on down the list of mir miraculous gifts and you can apply the same thing to all of those instances. There are times when the Lord had them do certain things. There are times when he didn't. But to do those things the way that it is done today in churches is presumptuous and it is sinful. And that's my commentary on that. Next, he says, by the power of God. I said that. Further, by the power of God is probably also speaking of the effect of the gospel on its hearers. People who never heard Jesus were converted by a simple explanation of who he is and what he came to do. If nothing else, that is a great example of the power of God working effectively in others. 
Okay, and while we're talking about that, I thought of one more instance of Paul not being able to get healed, and it was in himself. Three times I asked the Lord to heal me, and he didn't do it. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Okay, sometimes we are intended to be sick. Sometimes we are intended to be in the hospital. Sometimes we're intended to have our leg you know, get crushed in a car and have to be amputated. Don't mean to be gross, but these things happen in life. And it's a part of who we are and it is a part of our human experience. And the Lord wants to use us in that, not just to get us out of it, but he wants us to be able to glorify him through those type of things. Okay, next category. He changes the preposition from N or in or by sometimes to dia or through, which means by means of. So he went from N to dia by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. The endowments they exercised were done so by the means of righteousness. There was nothing false in how they conducted themselves, and what they did was for the glory of God, and it was in accord with his own righteous nature. And the term on the right hand and on the left is intended to show that they were fully prepared for whatever came their way. Just as a Roman soldier was capable of fighting with weapons in either hand, and as they were normally armed with a weapon in one hand and a shield in the other, they were able to fight both offensively and defensively. Likewise, the apostles were so prepared for the spiritual battles they faced. The idea is given a more thorough description in Ephesians chapter 6, and where Paul goes to describe the whole armor of God by which they, and which includes even us today, were prepared for meeting the challenges they faced. Now, the whole armor of God, when somebody emails me about something, I talked to somebody about it at my house a day ago. They were visiting from out of town, and we were talking about things, and I'm sure it was them that I mentioned it to, is that uh, the whole armor of God, you just go there and you read it, and it tells you how to be prepared. You know, you, let's go there really quickly, just so that we can go over that. Ephesians uh, 6. My, my Bible says the, the weapons Weapons. Right. And that's what I said. He's, they, 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 he's equating himself with Roman soldier. They have a weapon in both hands. They can fight with either hand. And they also have offensive and defensive weapons. They've got a shield. They've got a sword. And so it's a weapon. Okay. And that's what I'm going to say right now in Ephesians 6. Is he uses the same terminology. He goes, um, uh, hang on, uh, stand fast. Therefore, having girded your waist with the truth. So you've got your, uh, your, the Roman soldiers would have these kind of flowing garments. You've seen them. And what they would do is they gird them in real tight so that they wouldn't uh, trip them up while they were uh, doing their battle. Okay, so they girded their waist with the truth. He's saying, be truthful. Okay, this is just a paraphrase. I'm not going to give you all the detail of it. But right there, just be truthful. If you're truthful in what you do, that is its own offensive weapon. Okay, and then having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, he's not actually talking about going out and buying a breastplate and writing righteousness on it. He's saying that if you are righteous, it is as a breastplate to you. You are going to be able to defend yourself with righteousness. If you see people in the Congress that have an illogical argument and they're unrighteous in what they're talking about, they've got no defense. And people can see right through them unless they want to not see right through them. They want to be deceived by these people, but if somebody comes with a logical, righteous argument, they have that breastplate on, and the people can't come back and say, well, you're wrong. All they can do is start throwing off invectives and, and ad hominems at them, but they cannot defend against the righteousness. Same idea there, truth, righteousness. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel 
of peace, okay? In other words, your feet are what carry you around. You put on the gospel of peace, and everywhere you walk, you are sharing the gospel. You're telling people about the good news of Jesus Christ, all right? So there you go with that one. And then above all, he says, taking the shield. It is a weapon, but it's a defensive weapon, taking the shield of faith. You've got faith. Let it guard you in everything you do. If you have faith and you're sick, you can say, I understand that I have a reason for being sick, and my faith is going to carry me through this because it's not faith in something I'm doing. It's something that is my hope, Jesus Christ. Your faith, if you have grounded enough faith, this world is not going to get you down no matter what it is. I don't care how bad it is, you are not going to be miserable all the time because you have faith in something that is way better than this life. I understand. We have difficulties in this life. We get down. We, you know, especially when you get sick and you're miserable. But you have faith. You can lay there in your misery and say, I know that something is better ahead. And I'm thinking of our sister, Freda, who is going through that right now. And when I went to see her, she was just as content as she could be in her pain and misery because she had faith. Okay, she knows that this state is not the way it is. If you've got that faith, you have the defensive weapon that you need for anything that comes your way. Okay, and he goes on and he says, above all, take the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all of the fiery darts of the wicked one. You're able to take anything he throws at you. It doesn't matter what is thrown at you in this life. If you have faith, you will not be defeated because you have a hope that he doesn't have and that nobody can take away from you. That is the shield of faith. And then he says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. So you've got the, the um, uh, you're in the, the sword of the spirit, the helmet of salvation. Uh, you're adorning yourself with the fact that you are saved. I'm a saved believer in Jesus Christ. I'm adorning that on my head so that everybody can see it. I don't care. Let the world throw what it wants at me. That is my helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit right here. It is the word of God. If you've got this and you know it and you study it and you keep it impressed in your heart and in your mind, you can use this to break down anything in your way. Anything. I'm telling you, this is where you have your most effective defense of all is knowing the word and being able to properly and rightly divide it and apply it to your life. So those are the weapons of battle. The question specifically was being filled with the Spirit. And I said, as I always do when I talk about being filled with the Spirit, is that it is passive. passive. It is passive. That's right. It is not active. If you're a cup, you don't fill yourself. You, the, somebody has to fill you externally. And then you take the uh, idea of being married. I'm married to Hidako, and I'm never going to get more married than the day I said I do almost 36 years ago now. It's not going to happen. She's still my wife, and it's not going to get any more marriage, but she can get more of me as I yield to her, and I can get more of her as she yields to me. So we open ourselves up, and that happens only a couple ways in Christianity, being filled with the Spirit. Regardless of what charismatics teach, they are incorrect. It is passive. You are being filled externally, and you can only have that happen by reading the Word of God, by studying the Word of God, by praying to God, by praising God, by fellowshipping with other believers, by simply spending time with your wife, eating dinner, and saying how good the dinner was because God gave us this great dinner. That is filling you with the Spirit. It is something that happens because you are allowing the Spirit to fill you, okay? It's not going to happen any other way. I don't care what you do. You can listen to all the great music in the world, and that is not going to fill you with the Spirit, okay? People stand in churches, and they start shouting, come Holy Spirit. 
That's not how it works. It comes through an active participation on your part, okay, in the sense that you were doing something, worshiping, praying, praising, reading, etc., and then the Spirit is filling you passively, okay? That is how you are going to be filled with the Spirit. You are never going to get more of the Spirit than you did the day that you believed first in Jesus Christ. You'll never get more Spirit, but He can get more of you, and He will fill you as He does. So there you go. That's my little talk on the Spirit. And then um, let's see here. Uh, what We were in um, seven. Uh, 7 still. Yes. Okay, the idea is uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul goes on to describe the whole armor of God, by which day, and which includes us even today, we're prepared for meeting the challenges they face. Okay, life application. The apostles were given certain gifts and abilities which no longer exist today. They are called apostolic gifts. But they were also endowed with gifts and abilities with, with which each of us can be filled and which we can exercise. With training and constant use, we can hone our abilities to become effective soldiers in the spiritual battlefield which rages all around us. So, recommendation, read Ephesians 6 today and think on how you can better prepare yourself for the challenges that we as Christians are asked to face. Okay, 6-8. By honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true. True, wonderful stuff there. Okay, this again continues with the list of how the apostles were perceived by those around them and how they responded to those perceptions. They pressed forward, though, in order that they would, as he says, give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. That was from verse 3. The first item in this verse is by honor and by dishonor. This is referring to how he and the other apostles were perceived, not by how they actually conducted themselves. In John 7:12, this same type of thought is given about Jesus. There it says, and there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said he is good. Others said no. On the contrary, he deceives the people. It is certain that Jesus conducted himself and his ministry with honor. But some chose to look at it in a contrary manner, speaking ill against him. This is the same thing that the apostles faced. But they persevered in an honorable way in their efforts, regardless of how they were spoken of. Paul next says, by evil report and good report. This is similar to the previous item in the list. Paul was constantly maligned, as certainly were all of the apostles, as evildoers. Now, Paul, he's an evildoer. You hear it all the time in the book of Acts. Reports were sent against them, some good and some bad. An example of a good report is found in the decree of the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, 22 through 29, where they say Paul is going to bring this message and he's a good guy and, you know, whatever. Okay, an example of a bad report is found in Acts 17, 5 through 9, where Paul and his associates were accused of having turned the whole world upside down. So there's people out there on both sides of the spectrum all through the book of Acts. Uh, I wish that we had recorded the Acts what a great book. What a marvelous book of the Bible. That's why we started our studies with the book of Acts, is because it is a pivotal book in understanding what's going on in the church today. And my friends that were visiting and we were talking about things, I said, if you get the book of Acts wrong, your doctrine and all of the rest of your theology is going to be wrong. It's not question if, maybe, possibly. If you have the book of Acts wrong, you are going to have 
incorrect theology throughout all of your other doctrine in your New Testament studies and even in your Old Testament studies. It is that important of a book to understand and to handle properly. And I will tell you that the main two, you always have context, always maintain context when you're reading any book of the Bible or any passage of the Bible. But the two things you need to remember about Acts are the words descriptive and prescriptive. Does this describe something or does it prescribe something? And in the book of Acts, it describes everything and it, it prescribes almost nothing. Outside of Jesus' words in the first chapter of the book, there is almost nothing that is prescribed for the Christian in the book of Acts. And yet people will take Acts 2.38 and they'll say, see, you have to be baptized. Or the, and that's even in the wrong context. They take these things out of context and they say, you must do these things. And they have convoluted theology. Do not use the book of Acts in a prescriptive manner. And you will have at least partly good theology. Study the book of Acts, continue to study it, reflect on it, think on it. And that will be one of the key things to show whether you are going to properly handle the word of God or not. The book of Acts. It is a marvelously important book to read and to study. Anyway, are you um, sure that we didn't record? We Acts? recorded the last three studies. We didn't have any camera back then, and uh, no, we didn't record it at all. So, uh, as a matter of fact, I didn't even save the notes. The first um, up until chapter sixteen, I just did it off the top of my head, and it still took us two years to do. Wow. So, anyway, it it marvelous book, isn't it? I mean, it's just the most it's the most marvelous book. We should have recorded it, and maybe we'll go back and do it again because it is that important. But anyway, finally in the list of this verse, he notes that they are regarded as deceivers, and yet true. Again, this is similar to the first two thoughts in that accusations of false teaching and heresy were leveled against the apostles. The Jews saw the Christians as a false breakaway sect. That's another thing you learn from the book of Acts if you study it properly. Okay, in their mission travels, they were accused of introducing an illegal form of religion under Roman law. They were accused of making stuff up out of their heads and even being insane. And yet the message that they carried was and is the one and only true path to salvation. Without it, there is no hope for fallen man. But with it, there is reconciliation between God and man and the hope of an eternity of joy in his presence. The apostles carried this message faithfully and stood on it even to death itself. What I was saying about the uh, book of Acts and uh, the religious expression there is one of the purposes of the book of Acts is to show that Christianity is derived and a part of biblical Judaism. I'm not talking about Judaism of today. I'm talking about the lives of the Jews in the Old Testament. Christianity is an extension of that. Okay, And the reason why that's important is because it became, Christianity became considered what under the Roman Empire? Religio licita, a legitimate religion within the Roman Empire. And if you follow the book of Acts all the way through, again and again and again, the Jews are saying they're a heresy, they're a sect, and they don't belong to us, they have nothing to do with us. And every time the Romans judge that they are under the Jews and they are acceptable as a religion and they are uh, a part of the Jewish faith, okay? They, and as a matter of fact, we aren't a breakaway from the Jewish faith. We are the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. And that's why it you cannot have the Old Testament and stop there and come to a saving knowledge of 
what God is doing in redemptive history. You must come into the New Testament, but it is a Jewish book written by Jews, and the purpose was to share that message with the whole world, including the Gentiles. But it is the fulfillment of the scriptures, not a breakaway and separate part of it. That's why you get these, there's a sect of Christians, they call themselves, I can't remember the name, but they only study the New Testament. What a loss. What a complete loss to do that. And you know what it is? I'll tell you what that comes down to. It comes down to one word. Anybody guess what it is? Laziness. Laziness. That's the exact, it, I, I'm just going to follow Jesus and I'm just going to stick with the New Testament. They have no idea of any theology at all. They cannot know the theology of the New Testament without knowing the old. Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. That's right. Okay. You don't even know what that means unless you know what the Passover signified. You can't read the New Testament and understand, I would say, at least 45% of what it says in any manner without understanding the old well. Okay, so don't don't get into people that talk about I'm I'm a New Testament Christian only. That is bad bad theology. It's laziness. Do they take all their books and just read the last three chapters. That's it. Probably, yeah. Okay, life application concerning salvation. There is one truth of God and only one. It is found in the pages of the Holy Bible, and it reveals the message of Jesus Christ. It has become more and more unpopular to the people of the world to hear that this is so. And I wrote this commentary, what, eight, nine years ago? How much is it today? Because of this, faithful Christians can expect to be maligned, dishonored, and even accused of deception. These accusations may bring real trouble for Christians in the near future, but we are to be prepared for such a time and to be ready to make a defense for the hope which we profess. Be ready. Stand firm, proclaim that Christ is Lord. Okay, good stuff, 6-9. As unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened yet not killed. And yet not killed. Okay, 6-9, Paul's list of the things the apostles went through for the sake of the gospel is expanded to include as unknown and yet known. The apostles were ignored as if they were nobody's as if they were nobodies. People looked over them as if they were just one of many faces in a crowd or someone passing by on the street without a nod of the head to even say hello. Dignitaries looked down on them and others thought they were troublemakers. And yet, they were fully known to God. They were selected by him for his special work of the of beginning so far a 2,000-year proclamation by the Church of the Message of Christ. They were well known by those who had received their words of peace with God, and they were treated with respect by them for the important work that they were doing. Even if the world at large cared nothing for them, those who truly mattered knew them well. Next, he says, as dying, and behold, we live. In 2 Corinthians 1, verse 9, Paul noted that we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. He also noted in his first epistle to them that he died daily for the sake of Christ. But despite these type of things, they lived on. He uses the word behold for emphasis here. It is as if their dying itself died each day, turning into life by the power of God who sustained them. There is in this a hint of the great victory of Christ over death, which allowed them to face death, knowing that it had no true hold over them. 
And finally in this verse are the words, as chastened and yet not killed. This is probably not speaking of the chastenings of man, such as scourges and whips, but rather that of God. Paul notes in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7, that lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. God allowed this chastening. Somebody emailed me about that a day ago. As far as uh, Satan, what power does he have? And, you know, if I'm praying, can he hear my prayers? And, uh, uh, you know, how can he affect me? And I said, Satan cannot do anything without God's permission. He cannot. Go to Job chapter 1 and it'll show you that. He is limited by God. All right? If he's buffeting somebody, it's because God has allowed that. I'm talking about believers here. Okay? And so uh, another point about Satan is that he is not omnipresent. He is a created being and he is in one place at one time. So for the chance of Satan coming and pestering you, the chances are infinitesimal. He's got other things to worry about. He's probably up there pestering the leaders of the nations right now. Okay, but he does have demons that are in line with him. And it's very possible that demons are out there afflicting some and possessing others. But they cannot possess you if you are a Christian. Okay, it's not possible. They can pester you all day long. They can afflict you. They can give you a lot of grief, but they cannot possess you. But none of this happens apart from the sovereignty of God. None of it. Okay, anyway, um, and there it is, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. God allowed this chastening influence in his life in order to keep him humble and dependent on the grace of Christ in all things. Such a chastening may have been severe, but it was not enough to take his life. Instead, it was there to lead others to life. Such is the manifold wisdom of God. What we often think of as evil may actually have a good purpose in God's plan. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go watch the doctrine sermon we did three weeks ago on the sovereignty of God. We think something is evil, and yet, in fact, God is using it for his glory and for our good, and we don't even realize it. Joseph. Okay, What? Joseph. Joseph, perfect example. What, God in, what you intended for evil, God intended for God, good. And the highest example of all of that is what I said. Jesus was on the cross. Mary's looking at it. John's looking at it. And I guarantee you, they said, that is evil what these people are doing to my son or my best friend. And yet it's the highest expression of God's love that ever existed. Okay, so what we think is evil does not mean that it actually is. But we have to endure through it in the process and God will reveal to us why those things are happening now. If you've got a certain affliction in your life, whatever, you know, splotchy skin or something, you know, what's that called, vitiligo. Hey, if you're a Christian, you can say, it doesn't bother me at all. Hey, let God be glorified through it. And then people say, well, that's a pretty positive attitude, whatever your affliction is. If you're going to allow God to use that for his glory, then you're doing a good thing. Okay, life application. Reading and thinking on the story of Joseph will provide a real life, there you go, thank you, a recorded example of what Paul is speaking of in this verse. Take time to read his account from Genesis 37 through 50. Compare it to the words of Paul here. You will see exactly what Paul is speaking of. And while doing so, think on the same type of situations that you have faced. In doing so, you can be more reassured that your own trials are not unknown to God. Instead, they are fully known and have been and maybe even now are being used for his good purposes. 
if you can just keep that in your perspective and you say that faith remember we talked about faith a few minutes ago if you've got that in god nothing's going to shake you nothing's going to shake you if you have grounded faith if your faith isn't grounded you're going to be all over the place i posted something on facebook what was it uh, a couple oh yeah i posted something and uh, uh a lot of a lot of comments that were just all over the place i won't get into what they were but one of them was just wonderful mary joe she can't come because she's got some difficulties right now she said since i started going to the superior word and realizing that god is in control nothing bothers me nothing bothers me i thought what a testimony she posted that for the whole world to say so i can say it here it wasn't something private i tried not to say private things with any name attached to it but i was really proud of her for that one I don't, nothing bothers me. You know, your whole life you're going through thinking you're religious. And that was, you know, I went to Episcopal Church. It's Catholic life. But, you know, you think oh, I'm a Christian. And then you find out that what it really means to be saved and to have a hope. And eh, nothing should bother you. Nothing. Huh. Okay, 610. Is sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Is poor, yet making many rich i'll take that oh it's oh, having sorry. nothing and yet possessing all things the right kind of rich though not the wrong kind of rich the right kind okay paul completes his lengthy list of things the apostles endured for the sake of the gospel with this verse he begins with as sorrowful the life of the apostles was one which by its very nature included an element of sorrow they evangelized the lost many of whom never received the message they proclaimed for paul he carried an especially great sorrow for his own people, Israel. Concerning this, he said, we'll go to Romans chapter 9, and he says there in verses 1 and 2, I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. We'll go on. For I wish I that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. And he goes all the way through there talking about how much they've done and how much has been given to them, and yet they haven't come to Christ. And he says, I just wish, I wish that I could be accursed so that they could be saved. But he had this sorrow, this burden on his heart because of them. And then what does he start chapter 10 with? Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. He just wanted it so badly, it just exuded from him, and the pen just probably was just leaking ink all over the place because he's just so excited saying that and how in distress he was. Anyway, there you go with that, along with sorrow for the lost. They certainly felt sorrow during their afflictions, trials, and imprisonments. The life of an apostle was one of all of these as they were continuously under attack for what they proclaimed. And yet, at the same time, they were always rejoicing. They possessed something that could never steal their joy, the sure knowledge of the truth of Jesus Christ. Salvation has come to the world. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5.16, Rejoice always. That's right. He was the perfect example of this. Despite his sorrows and his earthly afflictions, there was a deeper and more perfect joy which these afflictions could never steal away. The 69th Psalm very closely reflects the sentiments which Paul writes about here. In it, David writes of the numerous trials and afflictions which he faced, and yet in the midst of it, he writes of sorrow mixed with joy. Let me take you there, Psalm 69. 
And he says in verse 29, But I am poor and sorrowful. Let your salvation, O God, set me up on high. I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify him with thanksgiving. We'll go on. This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or bull, which has horns and hooves. The humble shall see this and be glad, and you who seek God, your hearts shall live. For the Lord hears the poor and does not despise his prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah that they may dwell there and possess it. All the descendants of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. Next, Paul writes that they were as poor, yet making many rich. The word poor describes paupers. They were literally destitute of any earthly wealth. Paul worked with his own hands to feed himself. The rich and luxurious life he once knew had ended when he called on Christ. He once sat with the ruling council of Jerusalem, but later he often sat in Roman, dirty Roman prisons. He gave all for the cause of Christ as he testifies to in the book of Philippians chapter 3, where he says in verse 8, Yet indeed I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And yet in their poverty, the apostles made, as he says, many rich. Jesus asked in Matthew 16, verse 26, for what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? In other words, all the wealth of the world, all of it, is mere poverty without salvation. But through Christ, eternal riches await those who will but receive him. This is what the apostles offered to a sick and dying world. Through their message, many have become kings. It is a message which still has the same ability today. And so even though dead, even though dead, their word, I'm sorry, even though dead, their words are still bringing this eternal wealth to people everywhere. It's always good to put a comma in your sentence where you're trying to make a pause. Finally, Paul closes with this thought, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. Charles Ellicott explains these words this way. The series of paradoxes culminates in this, in language which is found echoes in thoughts of sages, saints, mystics, he utters the truth that in the absolute surrender of the thought of calling anything its own, the soul becomes the heir of the universe. All things are his, as with the certainty of an insured inheritance. The beatitude of the meek of those who claim nothing is that they shall inherit the earth. And so all things are theirs, the forces of nature and the changes and chances of life, for all are working together for their good. Even with the loss of all of their earthly riches, they had gained the greater eternal riches of heaven. The verb used in this verse means possessing all things to the fullest. 
Paul confirms this thought in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Let me take you there where he says in verse 21. Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things come, all are yours. And you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Life application, should Christians find themselves robbed of everything they possess, they still possess everything. Let us not worry about the temporary, corruptible, earthly things we have. We have. Rather, let us rejoice in our eternal inheritance, which Peter writes about in 1 Peter 1, 3 and 5, 3 through 5. 1 Peter 1. 3 through 5. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the chance to come into your presence and to share in the words of Paul today and what wonderful words they are, how encouraging it is to know that we possess all things, even if all things have been taken away from us. There is nothing that will be denied us in glory that won't satisfy our souls for all of eternity. We will be there and it'll be just wonderful. We'll see your face and we'll have the source of all good things right there with us, streaming for us throughout all of eternity, endlessly and ceaselessly. How wonderful that is. And we can't wait to see what it'll be like. Whatever it is, we know that it'll be wonderful because it's prepared by you for your people. And Lord, we thank you that you've made it so simple for us. All we have to do is believe. Thank you for the simple gospel message, which tells us that we are saved by grace through faith, and there's nothing we need to add to that. Thank you for that, Lord. We love you, we praise you, we exalt you, and we do so in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Amen. All right, let's see here. We've got to push this one since break. Yes, break. Okay. <laughs>